So Vinyl Me Please just released the story of Quincy Jones vinyl box set. And this Motley crew here is going to guide you through each of the eight albums. I'm Alyssa Leon Smith, Vice President of Business at Quincy Jones Productions. I've been honored to work with Quincy for eight years now, and I can confirm he really, really is that dude. I'm Sonarin Glinton. I'm a podcast host and a producer. I'm a contributor to NPR's Planet Money, and I have spent a career covering the intersection of the culture and the economy. And I'm Justin Richmond, host of Broken Record and vice president of I Have No Business Being Here. But, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Keep going, man. (laughs) Oh, gosh. So it's really impossible to fully capture Quincy's legacy and his influence on pop culture, entertainment, music history, and beyond in a 30-minute episode. But we are going to try to do the best we can. So let's get right into it. The first vinyl in the box set is This Is How I Feel About Jazz, recorded at Belltone Recording Corporation on West 31st Street in New York in 1956 and pressed on a 12-inch LP for a 1957 release on ABC Paramount. This album also documents one of his first major awards as Best New Star Arranger with a stamp from the Encyclopedia of Jazz Poll. So Quincy Jones was only 23 when he released this album, and he was incredibly aware of the role that he was meant to play in helping to decategorize music. And if you know anything about Quincy Jones, you know this is a theme that comes up time and time again throughout his entire career, even up until this very day. You hang out with him all the time. When you listen to this album, where do you see Quincy the most? Can you draw the connection from the 23-year-old to the 80-year-old? Absolutely. I would definitely say An Evening in Paris. That track really just captures the essence of who I see Quincy to be. When you're around him, he talks about Paris all the time. It's this magical place to him because it's a place where he felt free. And it's a place that really accepted him for who he was, not only as a jazz musician, but a a Black individual. It wasn't about what you look like. It was simply about, can you play? One of the things I think is interesting about this period is that Quincy kind of starts a boomlet in jazz by going and arranging for some of the greatest jazz singers and artists, right? Like, so it's like all of the ways of staking a claim. Like, I care about this music. It tells exactly who Quincy is. Tell me, how did Stockholm Sweetenin get on to this album? So by the time he released this LP, he had already gone on a few international tours. The first tour was his American tour with the Lionel Hampton Big Band in 1951 when he was 18 years old. And then the second tour was still with the Hampton Band in 1953 when he was 20 years old. And the third and probably the most famous tour that he likes to talk about is the United States State Department tour with Dizzy Gillespie in 55-56 when he was 22 years old. So with all that said, (laughs) you can tell that Quincy was well-traveled by this point in his career. It's insane to me that he did all of that by the time he was 22. 
And when you think about it, he grew up in the ghetto of Chicago. He always said that him and his brother used to say, okay, we're going to become baby gangsters because that was all they could see around them. But then when he went and traveled the world, his eyes were really open to what was possible. And on the tour with Lionel Hampton, Ben Webster actually pulled him aside and gave him a piece of advice. And he basically said, you know, wherever you go, you need to learn a few pieces of the language and listen to all the music and eat all of the food and basically just go to know. So from that point on, he really, really just absorbed everything around him coming from the segregated Chicago ghetto to going to Paris and Stockholm and all these other places where he not only could go and play this music that he loved, but he was accepted for it as a Black jazz musician. When he went to Paris, they were very welcoming. And the only thing they would say to each other is, can you play music? And if you can, then you're in. So it's really cool because track three of this album, Stockholm Sweetenin, was originally written and released while he was on that 1953 tour with Lionel Hampton in Europe. And Quincy always tells this funny story about how Gladys Hampton, Lionel Hampton's wife, who was the road manager and she was really strict and she told all the guys, you're not allowed to take any other gigs outside of the Lionel Hampton band because your focus is the Lionel Hampton band. But the thing is, they weren't being paid very well in the band. So Quincy and the other cats, as they call them in the band, would go and just accept other gigs if they could find them. And so one night, Gigi Grice had asked Quincy, can you arrange and conduct this album for Metronome Records? And Quincy and Art Farmer and Clifford Brown were like, sure, I mean, we'll do it if it's extra cash. So they would climb out of their hotel windows and down the fire escapes every single night to get to the studio to do this session. So during the session, they were in Stockholm, by the way. They would play from midnight to 7 a.m. And then they would climb back up the fire escape through the hotel window until it was time for their bus call. So they did that night after night. They did get caught by the Hamptons, but, you know, (laughs) they made it work. And that was actually in those sessions that he wrote Stockholm Sweetenin. And that's the track that later reappears on this album. This is how I feel about jazz. Yeah. And so one of the things I think is interesting about this box set is that there are these themes about Quincy's life that appear. Stockholm Sweetenin is sort of a foreshadowing Mm -hmm. of things to come because later in the next decade, he's going to marry a Swedish model. He's going to have two children. You know what this, you know what this album is? It's one of many thesis statements. It's like, this is how I feel about jazz. This is how I do things. I'm sorry to cut you off, but the funny thing is I asked Quincy what inspired you to make this album. And he was like, obviously the title. (laughs) (laughs) This is how I feel about jazz. What else do you want from me? (laughs) And you can tell simply by the music that he played sonically and both materially you know, there's track Stockholm Sweetenin and then the track In Evening in Paris. So these are really experiences that he's drawn on from his travels. And he just had such a respect for Swedish musicianship as well as, as being in France. So after this album, Hugh's name was popping up in the newspapers more and more. 
as he was receiving notoriety for his work in jazz, as well as his part in the transition from hot jazz of pre-World War II to cool jazz. And this album is a perfect, perfect way to demonstrate his influence on that because we're used to hearing Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker and really feeling that sort of grunge bebop, right? It's just fast and hot. But then here comes Quincy with, this is how I feel about jazz. And it's just very cool. You can play it in the background of a coffee shop and it's just chill. Newspapers were really picking up on that too. And they're like, okay, this kid really knows what he's doing and he's doing it on purpose. You know, what's interesting is we would probably talk about him as a musician if he'd stopped making music maybe three years later. Like, this is a whole career that, like... In and of itself. Just in and of itself. And we haven't even gotten yeah. to Sinatra yet. Yeah. I think if he had mm-hmm. stopped in 1961, his music career had stopped, you'd still be talking about it. You know, and his, his impact on jazz and Black music also would have been felt. Because, I mean, look at the track, look at the personnel list on this album. And you know it's a true expression, too, because when you listen to any number of the soundtracks he does in the later 60s, and you can hear what Quincy's going to do, which is really just move away from the showiness, the improvisation of like that, that grunge jazz, as you call it, which is a great expression, and make a jazz that really respects the instruments. You know, as an arranger, there's so much space in his music. He respects each instrument and each place it's supposed to be. And it's incredible that at 22, 23, in 1957, Quincy Jones is able to say, hey, this is how I feel about jazz. And it's like a fully formed expression that holds up. It's amazing. I had the feeling that he made it. And it's like really just he's only starting, you know, it's like after that, it's six decades of just exponential growth from there. He just does not stop. And that's the beautiful thing about him. He's always saying standing still is going backwards. You just got to keep going. And that's what he did. One of the things I love in the original liner notes that Quincy said He said, I would prefer not to have this music categorized at all, for it is probably influenced by every original voice in and outside of jazz. I think that just perfectly sums up his whole life career, even segueing into Frank Sinatra and the work that he did with him, because everyone kept criticizing him. You know, you're a jazz musician. You should stay as such or you you shouldn't be doing X, Y, and Z. And he's like, it's just good music. And that's what he was making from this is how I feel about jazz to Sinatra at the Sands. Well, that's what we call a segue. (laughs) In my business, the next album in this is, I mean, I don't know if there is an album that I have listened to in my lifetime more. Sinatra at the Sands was Frank Sinatra's first live album. It was put out under Reprise Records, which Frank Sinatra founded. Quincy leads Count Basie and his band in the Copa Room at the Sands and Casino in Las Vegas, Nevada in 1966. This is Frank Sinatra at his most Sinatra, right? It's like Sinatra is 50, Quincy's 32, and Basie is 62 at the time. They are each at a different peak. Like this is beyond jazz and beyond Quincy. This is a cultural thing. This is like the rat packiest rat pack. I am a Sinatra fan I own every album. I've listened to every album, thought about them a lot. What I realized is that this is sort of a peak in Sinatra's career. Like I said, he's turning 50. He had had a, like a bit of a flurry of activity 
right around then. And Quincy and Basie are sort of the house band of Frank Sinatra. When you pause that for a second, you got a 30-something-year-old Quincy Jones, and he's essentially in the moment of changing careers because this comes out in 1966. Pawn Broker, his first music score, comes out. American. American music <laughs> score, sorry, comes out right before then. And so like, there's like all of this tumult and change and it's 1966 in America. Like there's two black men and Frank Sinatra. And I think what I what I realize is this is definitely Sinatra's blackest album. <laughs> Which is like it is forward thinking. Right? Including Sinatra says on the intro to Fly Me to the Moon, he says, This cat right here talking about Basie, he's gonna lead me to righteousness. He's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. gonna lead me down the right path to righteousness. And all that other mother jazz. You're going to take me right to righteousness. <laughs> and you're like, what? Yeah. And well, this mother-loving jazz. What's he right, saying? I mean, it's like, right. he's talking it's jive. So yeah, he's talking ju- jive. And, but that's the other thing. Career-wise, he's introducing Quincy Jones every evening at the Copa Room with the high rollers as this guy is trying to make his way in Hollywood. Right. This he puts is, him right out at front. Right? I mean, if you think about it also, it is the establishment Hollywood saying to this young black man, you have arrived. I mean, like how more have you arrived than going to the steam room with Frank Sinatra? (laughs) I remember Shirley MacLaine wrote a book years ago and she was like, this is, that was him at his, that was Sinatra at his most relaxed. And and when you look, if you go look at photos of all of them, it just looks like they're having so much fun i mean it's like and do would you say Alyssa, that that's true like does quincy talk about this time as like oh, yeah. being one of the most yeah i mean if you time? ask him what was one of the best times of your life he'll obviously say oh, there's, there's too many too many i can't pick one it's like trying to choose a kid but then he'll say definitely when i was with frank sinatra <laughs> so it's hilarious to me that he kind of goes down that rabbit hole of the times of his life when he was just in Vegas with Sinatra and Basie and Sinatra would provide them their own bodyguard because he knew it wasn't safe for them. So he would give them one of his right-hand men to protect them while they were walking in and out of the Sands Hotel, just trying to protect them from the outside world. So if that doesn't tell you that Frank really loved these, as he says, cats, then I don't know what would, because that is truly such an act of self-sacrifice, especially when you know that that could potentially destroy your career as a white musician. And then we got to remember, I mean, this is biggest American stars, black stars going to Vegas. Lena Horne gets in the pool, they drain the pool, right? That wow. That's the that that's the context. That's the thing that is interesting. It's like, oh, him just being on the stage is groundbreaking. On the last day that I'm, you know, Sinatra used to always say, may you live to be 105 and may the last voice you hear be mine. I think that Quincy's reinterpretation and the bassy interpretation of I've got you under my skin, like it it swings so hard, it's almost funk, right? It's so, it's so on the edge yeah. of what Sinatra- It's dance music before dance music. I mean, there was dance music, but I mean, it's dance music as we're going to come to know dance music before we've come to know it as dance music. It's, it's incredible. Quincy will always say that when he was working with Frank Sinatra, 
if Sinatra was only tapping his foot lightly on stage, that means they weren't swinging hard enough. So then he would tell the drummer to pick up the beat a bit more because he really wanted Sinatra to be stomping. So that was really how he got him into that groove. Yeah, and one of the things is like, there is Quincy Jones up on the bandstand dancing. Like, that is like, all, all just on and of his own. He's like, oh, yeah, he also can dance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's true. Actually, I was reading a bunch of interviews with Quincy back in the day, and almost in every single one, the reporter was saying, I've never seen a conductor use his body that much. And what I mean by that is Quincy really conducts with his whole body. Like it's his arms, his head is moving, his legs are tapping. And, you know, you go to concerts nowadays, you see a conductor and they're just using their hands. So Quincy really had that feel in every single thing he put out. What I love about this, I mean, he gets Sinatra in this groove with Sonny Payne, one of the, I think, most underrated drummers Ever. We'll talk about John Bonham. I mean, <laughs> yeah, John, you know, like, I mean, Led Zeppelin, I mean, you know, Led Zeppelin, John Bonham had a had great, he swung, he had a heavy stand. I mean, this cat swung. I mean, just Sonny Payne is incredible. He was a technician, he had feel, it was it was the everything. Yeah, and then like and Freddie Green, who plays the guitar for Basie for years. By the way, the drummer and the guitarist are really important musicians for Sinatra. You got Eddie Luxaw Davis is playing tenor saxophone. Possibly one of my favorite musicians of all time is Harry Sweets Edison, who does these unbelievably beautiful fills. It's not credited on the album, but he is, you know, Quincy had hired him for It Might As Well Be Swing. And it's like, this is Basie at its, at its most Basie. <laughs> like this is, <laughs> as, as Julie Garland said, you know, singing with the Basie orchestra is like singing with a shotgun to your back. Right, right. And when you, when you ever you see them, you always talk about Quincy swinging. Bounce the moon, just like a toy balloon. I have a Sinatra quote here. You can't swing if a band doesn't settle into the proper tempo. I don't care how good you are, it just isn't going to come out right. And I was like, that sounds like something I've heard because Quincy Jones has said so many times that I can repeat it, which is, if it's in the pocket, God will lock it. I'm not really sure what that means, <laughs> but... I say that to myself all the time. Like, if the tempo is right, it will be right. And what is more in the pocket to me than Francis Albert Sinatra, Quincy Delight Jones Jr., and, you know, William Count Basie at the Sands Casino in 1966? Like, if you were to give me a moment of living, it has to intersect with that moment. Like, that's a moment that I want to be around for. Alyssa and I had the chance to spend a couple of weeks with Quincy in New York with the opening of The Shed in Hudson Yards. And when I listen to Sinatra Live at the Sands, I think about this. At 86, not one of the evenings did I go home after Quincy Jones. Like, <laughs> so true. So think about, he is with Frank Sinatra, Count Basie in Las Vegas, and he's 32. Well, they're probably out all night. <laughs> hey, like you can't like when did he sleep? When did he do anything? Like that is, but also you can imagine where that love of nightlife comes from. I mean, the dude doesn't even get up now before noon, does he? I mean, like no, that's like four p.m. <laughs> right. I just always think about that as like those two moments. It's like I'm hanging out with him in his eighties, fifty years, and I can't, I can't hang. Yeah. 50 years ago, what was he doing? 
He's an energizer bunny, as we always like to say. <laughs> I don't think we even mentioned the fact that Fly Me to the Moon was the first song played on the moon. In the right tempo. Yeah. It That's is. pretty something. Fly me to the moon. Yeah, it's essentially the best yet to come, Fly Me to the Moon, are really big hits and they're cultural things. You get an Italian-American singer, a Black band, a Jewish composer. Like, that's, that, that is, that's America on the moon. That's the, that's the height of, of, of American exceptionalism. America won't be as confident, music won't be as confident as this moment. That's what makes this such a powerful album. And it feels like the the feather in his cap that Quincy's most proud of. And there's like a lot of feathers in that cap. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, he will tell you, it's like, that song's first one on the moon. Like, I, like would, I would never stop telling people if that was my song on the moon. Yeah. I can't but, but he has a whole career of things I would never stop telling people. I mean, that's the thing. It's you know, true. it's like, it's, I, it's one of those things that I even forget about, but it's like, oh yeah, Jesus. Quincy is moving away from arranging to doing music scores. I don't think it's that weird that Sinatra, less than five years later, hangs his hat up. I almost would hope that Quincy could have had more time in the arranging world. You know, if you could imagine finding another Fly Me to the Moon or The Best Is Yet to Come. And, the, you know, in my opinion, the arrangers who come in this period of Sinatra's career just aren't as good and they're just not as exciting. And you can see he just loses... You know, he goes from that height in 1966. And I, I have in an, in an alternate universe, I imagine, what if Quincy had done uh, four or five years? You know, like, would Sinatra have retired? Would, you know, like, and keeping... The what ifs. Yeah, and keeping yeah. the music current. If he had still been in the jazz world or the pop jazz leading band world, where would that have gone? But, you know... What but if for now, if? Yeah. we got what we got, and I'm not <laughs> mad at it. <laughs> I no. mean, I keep hearing Fly Me to the Moon everywhere. I was just watching Squid Game, as I'm sure everyone has been lately, because it's everywhere. But the song is playing in one of the first scenes, and it's like this really morbid twist like- on the song. But it's still being played today in every single possible scenario. So I think they did good for the years that they yeah. had. Sonari, Sinatra at the Sands, like you said, is an album you've maybe heard more than any other album. What song would you pick as the quintessential song on this record? I almost want to say Fly Me to the Moon, but the studio recording is so good that I'm going to leave it there and say the reimagination of I've Got You Under My Skin. It's essentially what Quincy is setting out to do. I'm going to take Cole Porter, a dude from Indiana, and I'm going to take Frank Sinatra from Hoboken, New Jersey, with Bill Basie from Kansas City, me from Chicago and Seattle, and we're going to show you what American music is about. There are alternate versions that I've heard of this song, and there's one where Sinatra says, we're going to take this building and we're going to move it three feet that way. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> it's just like, that is like, we're going to swing, and it's yeah. so hard. It's That's what I love about it. That happens on this album. That happens. Your car will move three feet <laughs> if you listen to this. It is insane. It's so true. Oh, you know, this is like a random aside. I remember I'm a car person and I'd gotten a new convertible car and I was driving down Santa Monica Boulevard and I was playing Fly Me to the Moon with the top down. And a black man 
in a later model Mercedes with a hat on pulls up right beside me. This is literally at Rodeo and Santa Monica Boulevard. He looks at me and he goes, you know, it's Quincy Jones's birthday, don't you? And I'm like, no. amazing. Is it? And he's like, yes, it is. And literally we said, yes, it is. It was like, there's this like musical moment when Fly Me to the Moon is like, and he, the dude pulls off right at that moment. It's one of the memories of my life. It's like on his birthday, I'm driving in a convertible and the black man like gives me, he's like, you got good taste. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Wait, Justin, so what's your favorite from either album? Oh, okay. You know, off of This Is How I Feel About Jazz, I really love Sleeping Bee. It feels to me like foreshadowing Quincy's career. Just the sound of it, it sounds like Quincy to me, like fully formed when I hear that. And off Sinatra, the Sands, Street of Dreams, which just speaks to me. Yeah, which I think that Quincy, they arranged specifically for that. So I don't think that song doesn't appear anywhere else except for this. And it's a unique cue arrangement. It's just beautiful. It's just, so it's just when, it, when it's on, it's like, I don't know, everything slows down around me. I'm just in the, living in the world of that song. Like It just puts me in a world. And it puts me in my emotions too. I just I'm in my feels when that one when that one's on. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of transcendent and uh, Quincy, each of these episodes we're going to end with one of his quotes. I'm going to choose the one that I know off the top of my head. If it's in the pocket, God will lock it. And like I said, I'm not a thousand percent sure what that means, but it's about timing. When the time is right, the music is right. It was an amazing way to come up. <laughs> God damn. Ooh. And basically, too, see, that's like going to heaven. It is. When Sinatra called you and asked, begged you to do a record with him and Bass, I said, man, shit, is the Pope a Catholic? Fuck, I'll be there with my underwear on. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. You can't plan that. That's God. Really? Yeah. That's total divinity. So do us a favor, click like, click share, do all those things. In the next episode, we're going to look at two landmark items, walking in space and body heat. Mm. 